Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Fernando, a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre and Education Director of GP Notebook Education. And welcome to our new GP Notebook podcast, a bite-sized weekly chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Today, we have a special diabetes-related podcast in honour of World Diabetes Day, Thursday, 14th November 2019, and I'm going to be covering some diagnostic dilemmas and classification conundrums in diabetes. Now, one of my all-time favourite medical quotes is by Sir William Osler, the late, great Canadian physician. The good physician, or nurse, or pharmacist treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. We must always trust our gut instinct, our clinical acumen, when the numbers don't fit with that person sat in front of us. And it is increasingly challenging, isn't it, to even distinguish between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And often the safest strategy is to presume type 1 diabetes until proven otherwise. So I'm going to take you through a few brief case studies to illustrate some diagnostic tips and also importantly pitfalls to avoid in primary care. So first of all, we have a 65-year-old retired school teacher. She also has a past medical history of hypothyroidism. She came to see in surgery recently because she was seeing, feeling very tired and thirsty and had lost a fair amount of weight over the preceding few months. And you notice from a clinical record, she has a strong family history of type 2 diabetes. BMI is 24 kilograms per meter squared. Urinalysis was negative for ketones. You check some bloods, HbA1c returned at 66 millimoles per mole. LFTs were mildly abnormal. We discussed this last week. She had a mildly elevated ALT at 65, a normal alkaline phosphatase at 100, a mildly elevated gamma GT at 75, and a normal bilirubin at 18. And a lipid profile showed that frequently encountered dyslipidemia, as we see in primary care, high triglyceride levels, low HDL levels, and a higher LDL level. So what might we do next with this 65-year-old lady? Would we arrange to repeat our HbA1c in a few weeks' time to confirm diagnosis of type 2 diabetes? Or are we worried about a different form of diabetes? Are we worried about type 1 diabetes? Would we send her into hospital? Or would we maybe check C-peptide levels or pancreatic autoantibodies? Or in view of our deranged LFTs, would you arrange some abdominal imaging? Unfortunately, this lady has pancreatic cancer, and this has been a very important learning point for me over the last few years with respect to the early recognition of pancreatic uh, cancer. We have had two guidelines published during 2015, NICE NG12, Suspected Cancer Recognition and Referral, and also Scottish Referral Guidelines for Suspected Cancer, which were actually updated earlier this year in 2019, that suggest we in primary care 
consider urgent direct access CT scan to be performed within two weeks or an urgent ultrasound scan if CT is not available to assess for pancreatic cancer in people aged 60 and over with weight loss and any one of the following. Diarrhea, back pain, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, or indeed new onset diabetes. So a very important learning point for us all. As we know, type 2 diabetes is usually associated with weight gain, sometimes weight neutrality, but rarely weight loss. So a very important learning point for us all in primary care to improve our early diagnosis of cancer. As we all know too well, unfortunately, pancreatic cancer is often diagnosed at a late stage and as a dismal five-year prognosis. Secondly, we have a 58-year-old gentleman who attends for routine diabetes review. He's had type 2 diabetes for around five years ago, and from his clinical record, you see he's a family history of bowel cancer. His current HbA1c is 75 millimoles per mole, and his weight is 84 kilograms. And he's currently on metformin one gram twice a day, which he's tolerating okay, glycolyzide 80 milligrams twice a day, he checks his sugars at home, and simvastatin 40 milligrams nocte for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So you reinforce that all important lifestyle advice and you arrange it to see him again in three months time after another HbA1c check. At that point, HbA1c is much the same, perhaps a little bit higher, 79 millimoles per mole. His weight has come down a wee bit though, 82 kilograms, and his fasting blood glucose levels from his blood glucose diary are about 9 millimoles per litre. So, what do you do next? Do we reinforce lifestyle advice again and simply repeat his HbA1c in another three months? Do we refer him to your local weight management service? Would you add in a third line oral hypoglycemic agent, such as an SGLT2 inhibitor? Would you consider an injectable agent, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, or perhaps basal insulin? Or would you do something else? Well, actually, for this gentleman, we checked some bloods, and that revealed a significant iron-deficient anemia. Hemoglobin was 79, MCV was 61, and ferritin was less than 5. His hematinics were normal. So he was referred for an urgent endocolonoscopy, which revealed a sigmoid cancer. So I wanted to use this case to illustrate when we should interpret HbA1c with caution. Um, as many of you know, we are increasingly using HbA1c to diagnose type 2 diabetes, but it is not the perfect tool. It's probably the best we have, but it's certainly not the perfect tool. And NICE NG28 type 2 diabetes guideline published during 2015 does remind us that we should interpret HbA1c with caution in situations where red blood cell lifespan is altered or where hemoglobin structures abnormal, for example, hemoglobinopathies. So one of those useless facts we all remember from medical school is that a red blood cell lives for 120 days. However, in iron deficient anemia, your red blood cells live for longer. So they circulate for longer, they're exposed to glucose for longer, so you get an artificially elevated HbA1c. 
Conversely, in bleeding disorders such as hemolysis or acute blood loss, your red blood cells have a shorter lifespan. So they circulate for a shorter duration of time. So they're exposed to glucose for less. So you get an artificially low HbA1c. So to, uh, to, to recap there, iron deficient anemia, vitamin B12 deficiency can artificially elevate your HbA1c, whereas bleeding disorders, hemolysis, acute blood loss, also CKD and hemodialysis, hypertriglyceridemia, recent blood transfusion, hemochromatosis and venosection can all lower your HbA1c. So just be aware of these scenarios of when to interpret HbA1c with caution. The other clues in this gentleman's case were the discrepancies uh, in terms of his weight, first of all. So despite his weight falling a couple of kilograms, his HbA1c increased. And secondly, there was a discrepancy between his HbA1c and his fasting blood glucose levels. At an HbA1c of 78 or above, you would actually expect a fasting blood glucose of about 12 to 13 or even a little higher, whereas his glucose levels in the morning were around about 9. So once again, if the numbers don't fit with that patient sat in front of you, do consider some further investigation. Next, monogenic diabetes. Now, monogenic diabetes is a cluster of genetic disorders. So these, uh, in these disorders, you get beta cell dysfunction, which is secondary to a genetic mutation rather than the lifestyle issues we see in type 2 diabetes or the autoimmune destruction we see in type 1 diabetes. And it affects about 1% to 2% of those living with diabetes. So about 1% to 2% of people on our diabetes registers will have a genetic form of diabetes. And the commonest form is something we call maturity onset diabetes of the young or MODI. And over six subtypes of MODI have been identified so far, and most are actually autosomal dominant. So you'll get them occurring once in every generation at least. So why am I telling you about this? Why do we need to have this on our radar in primary care? And that's because many forms of MODI can be treated with either oral medication or actually simply diet alone. So this is potentially life-changing for people misdiagnosed, for example, with type 1 diabetes, who might be on an intensive insulin regimen, uh, when in fact, all they need is either oral medication or simply diet alone. So of course, we don't need to be experts in monogenic diabetes, in MODI, in primary care, but what features might make us think about a diagnosis of MODI? Well, a strong family history of diabetes, any type involving two or ideally three consecutive generations can be a clue. Remember I told you most forms are autosomal dominant. A young age of onset between the second and fifth decades, an age of onset usually is below the age of 45. Absence of the features of insulin resistance, such as centripetal obesity. Uh, often individuals with MODI are, are slim. And also hyperglycemia that is initially easy to control. Individuals may not require any medication initially or, or very low doses of insulin, for example, and no history of DKA in someone who has been uh, mislabeled with type 1 diabetes. So these are just some features that may point towards a diagnosis of MODI. 
Now, a really useful resource for us all to be aware of in primary care is the Diabetes Genes website, www.diabetesgenes.org. This is a fantastic treasure trove of information about monogenic diabetes with a very useful Modi probability calculator. So well worth bookmarking on your desktop. They've also produced a very helpful diabetes diagnostics app, free to download, again, can help you predict the probability of that person sat in front of you having a diagnosis of Modi. So well worth having a look at these two resources. And then finally, type 3C diabetes. <laughs> I know you're all thinking, what on earth is type 3C diabetes? Well, type 3C diabetes is actually diabetes of the exocrine pancreas, okay? So we're all familiar with the endocrine function of the pancreas. The alpha cells produce glucagon, the beta cells produce insulin. But the pancreas also has an exocrine function. It produces many enzymes uh, which are very important for digestion, such as lipase and amylase. So when you have the structure and function of the pancreas disrupted by certain disease pathologies, you can get diabetes of the exocrine pancreas or, or pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So what conditions might cause it? Acute and chronic pancreatitis, cystic fibrosis, hemochromatosis, and once again, pancreatic cancer. So why do we need to know about this? Why am I telling you about this? That's because those individuals with type 3C diabetes are nearly twice as likely to have poor glycemic control. We often see quite significant fluctuation between hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia. They're also much more likely to require insulin within five years of diagnosis. So it is important. We are aware of this concept of type 3C diabetes and recognize it early. And that will allow us, of course, won't it, to target management of these fluctuating glucose levels. And importantly, because of these lack of digestive enzymes, individuals with type 3C diabetes need appropriate management of malabsorption with pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, as well as replacement of fat-soluble vitamins, namely A, D, E, and K. So what features might point us towards a diagnosis of type 3C diabetes of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency in primary care? Well, clinical features such as diarrhea and steatorrhea, abdominal discomfort, flatulence and bloating, fatigue, or as mentioned in most severe cases, quite erratic blood glucose control. How can we diagnose this? It's diagnosed by sending a simple stool sample for something called fecal elastase 1. And low levels of fecal elastase 1 suggest a possible diagnosis of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency or type 3C diabetes. Of course, we're going to be involving our secondary care colleagues to help manage, support individuals with type 3C diabetes. But one of the key aspects of management is, as mentioned, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. Many of us are already familiar with using products such as Creon in primary care. Typically, we would give a dose of Creon of 25,000 to 50,000 units three times a day uh, and perhaps 25,000 uh, units with snacks. And a really useful resource for us all in primary care is the Trend UK 
pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and diabetes leaflet. So well worth visiting the Trend UK website to download that leaflet uh, for use in primary care. So to conclude, why don't you have a look at my classification of diabetes GP notebook shortcut available at www.gpnotebookeducation.com, which summarizes key features of all the common and less com common forms of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults or LADA, type 2 diabetes, monogenic diabetes, gestational diabetes mellitus, and type 3C diabetes, which we have just talked about. So thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at www.gpnotebookeducation.com to notch up some CPD points, register for our GP Notebook Clinic events, and download free resources and my other GP Notebook shortcuts. Next week's topic will be on obstructive sleep apnea in children. And I look forward to speaking to you then.